Welcome to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church in Harvest, Alabama. We invite you into our sanctuary as we dive into God's Word with our pastor, Dr. Al Peringer. Well, tonight I want to look at Daniel 2 and kind of finish up that chapter. And uh, if you remember what's going on uh, in the book of Daniel, Daniel and his friends, uh, they, they were taken into captivity, brought to Babylon. They completed a three-year training to become part of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, government, his court. One night, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and uh, he called his enchanters and magicians uh, to, well, he told them, I, I, want, I want you to tell me the dream and then interpret it, because if you can tell me the dream, then I know you can interpret the dream. But if you can't tell me the dream, I don't think your interpretation is going to be worth anything. Well, they said, well, no one can tell you the dream. You tell us the dream, we tell you the interpretation. That's how it works. That's not the answer Nebuchadnezzar wanted, so he got mad, wanted all of his wise men, the entire upper cabinet, whatever, uh, killed and sent uh, Arioch, his, the captain of the king's palace, to, to uh, kind of pull that off. Go, go kill all my wise men. I'm sick and tired of them. They can't do what I asked them to do. Well, Daniel just asked to see the king and, and told the king, give me some time. I'm going to, I'll be able to tell you what you want to know. And so Daniel went back to his friends, and they sought the Lord in prayer, earnestly, persistently praying to God. And that, that night, or one of those nights, we don't know how long they were praying, uh, but um, God gave Daniel uh, the, the information that he wanted. God gave uh, Daniel um, the dream and its interpretation, and God answered the prayer. And so what they did first was, they went back to God in prayer and thanked God for what uh, he had done and gave him praise. Well, we pick up the story from there in Daniel chapter 2, beginning in verse 24. Let me read verses 24 through 30 uh, first here. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said, to, said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and, and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But... There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So we'll stop there for now and get, get to the rest of it. But Daniel approaches Arioch, the captain of the king's guard. And, you know, he was given the task of killing all the wise men, and he said, bring me before the king, I've got the answer. Well, Arioch brings him before the king, and I don't know if he wanted to get some credit, he wanted to get some recognition. You know, he, I, I love how it's written here. He tells the king, oh, I found someone who's able to interpret your dream. I mean, it was Daniel that approached him. But Arioch says, oh no, I'm the one that found him. 
and he wants all the recognition and, and the praise. And it's interesting to note that he says, I found someone from among the captives of Judah. And I find it interesting to note that because that means that all these Babylonians, these pagans who followed the same religion that Nebuchadnezzar followed, these magicians, these enchanters, they could not give the king the answer that he sought. The gods, small g, obviously, who these folks worshipped and sought, those gods could not provide an answer. However, there was someone from the land of Judah who follows Yahweh who is able to have the answer because Yahweh has all the answers and Yahweh is the one that gave the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. And so Arioch brings Daniel in and Daniel is quick to note that it wasn't him who came up with the answer. He tells Nebuchadnezzar, honestly, there, there, there is no human being who is able to give the king the answer that he was looking for. There was, there, there was no one in his government, there was no human being who was able to give him the information that he sought. There was only one who could give this information, and that is Yahweh God. God is the one who gave the king the dream to begin with, and only God is the one who can give the details of the dream and its interpretation. And this is very important, because when we're able to do something good for the kingdom of God, or just anything good that we could do, we don't take credit for ourselves. We give God all the glory and honor because it was he who accomplished this through us. We are the tools, but he is the one who wields the tool. We don't have the power. We don't have the wisdom. We don't have the know-how within ourselves to accomplish anything of significance. If anything that is godly, anything that is of eternal worth happens through us, it happens because God is the one who did it through us. And we have to be quick to recognize that, and we have to be quick to give him the credit for that. Now, if we do bad, yeah, we get the credit for that. If we do any good, God gets the credit for that. Just last week, I, I was telling someone an idea that I had, and I added this fine print. I said, if this is a good idea, God is the one who did it. If it's a really stupid idea, yeah, that came from me. That came from my own mind, my own brain. But if it's a good idea, God's the one who did it. As one author pointed out, there is a model here for all of us in our relationships with those who do not know our God. In contrast to the self-promoting way of the world, we should constantly seek occasions to exalt and declare publicly the praises of our God. Whatever gifts and abilities we have, whatever successes we may meet with in life, all of them are ultimately the work of the one who gave us those gifts and opportunities along with the diligence and perseverance to pursue them. We are simply God's servants doing the work he has assigned to us. 
He deserves all the praise and adoration. The biblical word for this attitude is humility. The perspective that sees our own size rightly in comparison to the surpassing greatness of our God. And that is our attitude. I mean, I know, we're typical human beings. We love to get the attaboys. We love to get the pats on the back like Ariok did. Oh yeah, I found this guy who's from Judah who could do the interpretation. No, he didn't. Daniel's the one that approached you. But that's not to be us. It is God working in us and through us, according to his will, according to his purposes, according to his good pleasure. And, and so we give him the glory and honor. So God is the one who gave Nebuchadnezzar the dream. God is the one who gave the details of the dream. God is the one who gives the interpretation of the dream. It's not Daniel. It's not anybody else. Daniel is merely a vessel through whom God spoke. And we are merely vessels through whom God works. He gets all the credit, he gets all the honor, he gets all the glory for whatever good happens through us, whatever of eternal worth happens through us. So Daniel begins giving the report that God gave to him. So the night that the king had the dream, he had gone to bed thinking about the future and stability of his own reign. Now remember, he, he's pretty new to the throne. This is probably what we would consider within his first three years of reigning. And God revealed to the king what would happen in the future regarding his, his own kingdom as well as the kingdoms that were to come after him. And, and, and this shows, again, the entire course of history is in God's hands, and God is moving history according to his intended goal. And now God wants Nebuchadnezzar, you know, he wants to make sure that Nebuchadnezzar understood this. Nebuchadnezzar, you're not in control. I am. I'm the one that's moving history along. So Daniel continues, and he first gives the details of the dream, just like the king requested. Tell me the dream, then tell me the interpretation. So he tells the dream. Look in verses 31 through 35. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand and it was struck, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And so now Daniel fulfills the first part of the king's request. Describe the dream. Give the details of the dream. And here it is. The king saw this large statue that was pretty frightening. And... Now, it's interesting, this statue is going to serve as a pattern for something that happens in chapter 3, so, you know, we'll begin looking at that next week. It actually might, what, what he saw might actually be called a colossus in the literal form of the word, because the word colossus means a gigantic, si a gigantic statue. It's gigantic in size, and it's gigantic in proportion, so it was a literal colossus that he saw. And, and 
and this statue depicted a human being because of the way that, that it's described. And, and, and so that might be an indication that whatever the statue represents, it represents humanity, it represents something that is man-made. But the statue is interesting in that each section of the statue is made of different material. And as you move down the statue from head to toe, it, the material that it's made of becomes less valuable, less impressive. And so he says, the head was of gold. The chest and arms were of silver. You know, the, the midsection from you know, the, the stomach down to the knees was, was made of bronze. And then from the knees down to the ankles was iron. And then the feet was iron uh, mixed with some clay. So here's this weird, frightening-looking colossus. But then, all of a sudden, out of seemingly nowhere, there was this rock. It says the rock was not made from human hands. It had not been chiseled off of something. So there is no human explanation for this rock. The rock, therefore, has a supernatural uh, has a supernatural basis, has a supernatural origin to it. So you make the comparison. The statue represents something that is man-made. The stone is something that comes from God. And this stone, we don't know where, you know, it's not stated where it comes from. It's not stated who threw it. Somebody had to hurl this thing at the statue. And and it struck the statue at the feet. But the entire statue came tumbling down, turned to dust, and then was blown away by the wind. But the rock remained, and this big stone, this rock, this eventual boulder, it actually grew until it became a mountain. And this mountain covered the entire earth. It started small, and then it grew larger until it covered... The entire earth, it covered more ground than the statue did, or any part of the statue. I don't know about you, that's one strange dream. I've had a lot of strange dreams. Last night, I had this weird dream about a dog that was not my dog. It was a golden retriever. We don't have a golden retriever. But was leaning against my back, and then all of a sudden this dog started talking to me. Don't remember what he said. Weird. I didn't, I didn't eat anything weird yesterday either. I don't know what, what's going on. It's just those weird dreams. But this is a weird dream. I can see why maybe this would bother the king a little bit. God was letting Nebuchadnezzar know something that was going on. Something that would, would be happening to him. Something that would be happening in world history. And thankfully, we're not left wondering what in the world the dream means because Daniel is given the interpretation and he gives the interpretation to the king. So look at verses 36 through 45. He said, this was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man. 
the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You're the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things, and like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as he saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of the iron shall be in it, just as he saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As he saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. But in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. So, Daniel begins the interpretation first reminding Nebuchadnezzar that all the power and the might that he wields, and he wields a whole lot, it comes from God. God has given Nebuchadnezzar great power and strength and riches and influence. His influence even goes beyond his empire. And Daniel makes it known to him that he is the head of gold. And what you'll see a lot in the Bible and in the ancient Near East, that kings when they're referred to, often reference their kingdom. So it's talking about Babylon. Sometimes it, it goes the other way. When, when a kingdom is referenced, it's actually a reference to the king who is over it. And so when he says that you are the head of gold, saying you, Babylon, you, you Nebuchadnezzar, are Babylon. And Babylon is this empire. And it's, in its heyday, Babylon was very powerful. Now, Nebuchadnezzar reigned for 30, 40 years, but after Nebuchadnezzar died, things just kind of went downhill for Babylon. And eventually they disappeared. And, and so now each section of the statue, and if you remember what it was interpreted, each section of the statue represented an earthly kingdom, an empire, and it, it specifically is referencing the empires that that are in that area. They're the empires that have influence over the land of Israel. Because if you, you remember the history of Israel, I mean, Israel was never independent again after this. There was always some empire that had power and influence over the land of Israel. But here you go, you got this empire, and then you got that empire, and then you got that empire, and then you got that empire. It is a reminder, God is the one in control, and he raises and he brings down empires as he sees fit. Now, what do the different parts of the statue mean? Well, you know, for the first four uh, sections, theologians are pretty much, I should say, conservative theologians are pretty much in agreement 
Liberal theologians, not so much. They try and change things around so that they can say, well, no, Daniel wasn't written when Daniel was written. Daniel wasn't written until a whole lot later, but it, it just doesn't make sense. Looking at what is said and now knowing the history behind it, it it's exactly what these conservative theologians uh, say that it means. The head of gold is Babylon. And after Babylon would come an empire that would be in some ways inferior. Now that would be the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medo-Persian Empire is, is, is represented by the chest and arms of silver. Now, you know, it, Daniel says that these empires are inferior to Babylon, but the thing is, these empires actually covered more ground than Babylon. And, you know, the way that um, the, the, the empire that's represented by the iron it is described, I mean, it was powerful, it was crushing things all over the place. So, when it says that it's inferior, it doesn't necessarily mean somehow that it was less powerful or had less influence or covered less ground. I mean, some of those empires lasted longer than the Babylonian Empire. Some of them covered greater area than the empire. So, it's possible that the meaning of that they would be inferior is that it might be morally inferior. Um, each empire would become more corrupt. I mean, it's somewhat the case. They'd become more mean. They'd become, I don't know, but there's something there. Maybe, maybe that the, their power wasn't as centralized as it was with, uh, with um, Nebuchadnezzar. But the Medo-Persian Empire followed. And so that's the, the you know, that, that's the chest. Now, from the stomach to the knees, it says that it's made of bronze. And that is referring to the Greek Empire, or maybe sometimes referred to as the Greco-Macedonian Empire. So that's the middle section of bronze. After that would come an empire of, of iron that would be that would have the strength to crush everything in its way. Um, and that is most likely the Roman Empire. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, that's exactly what happened in world history. You read the history books. Not, I mean, non-Christian history books. You just read the history books. There was Babylon. There were the Medo-Persians. There was Greece, Alexander the Great. Then there was the Roman Empire. That seems pretty straightforward. And the statue just lines up, one right after the other. They would have control over that area. They would have control over Israel. These empires would succeed, one right after the other. The Babylonians fell to the Medes and Persians, and we'll actually see that in Daniel. The Medes and Persians fell to Alexander the Great, the Greco-Macedonian Empire, and then the Roman Empire. Now, it's, where, it's this whole feet thing where theologians, even conservative theologians, all just kind of split um, on how to interpret that. There's iron and then there's clay mixed in, in, into that. Now, obviously, it has something to do with the iron legs, so it's a continuation of that because there's iron in it. 
So here's probably the two major interpretations. I'll give you my take, and you just take that for what it's worth. I mean, you, you, you do your study, you, you figure it out what you think it, it means. But some interpret the feet mixture of iron and clay to be an end-time empire that would have some sort of connection to the Roman Empire. Because, I mean, it has to have a connection to the Roman Empire. There's iron in it. The iron legs mean the Roman Empire. So if that's the case, then the rock represents Christ's second coming to create his earthly reign. I mean, there's no, there's no doubt that the rock represents Christ and his empire set in you know, setting up the kingdom of God. Now, some will say that, you know, they assume that the, the feet have ten toes, and then they correspond that with the, the ten horns in chapter 7 on this one beast, and, you know, we'll get there eventually. And so they believe that the, this end-time empire will consist of ten kingdoms jointly ruled at the time of Christ's return. Um, I think you've got to be careful with that because Daniel in no way, shape, or form makes any reference to the ten, to ten toes. And so where, where Scripture is silent, you know, we, we, we better be silent. All we know is that there's feet and it's mixed with iron and clay. I mean, for all we know, there were shoes on the feet, and so maybe the ten toes weren't showing. I don't know. But, you know, so Daniel didn't fixate on ten toes. He, he just... Here's the different materials. Here's what they mean. Okay, so that's one interpretation. Others believe that the feet, are, they, they just represent the Roman Empire who would eventually become fragile. And, and the stone represents Christ's first coming and he sets up the kingdom of God in the rule and reign of the hearts of the people all over the world. So those are the two major interpretations. And I, I, I lean more toward that latter interpretation because I think it makes more sense of the statue itself because there's nothing to indicate some sort of gap between the legs and the feet. The whole thing is just continuous from, from Babylon to the Medo-Persians to the Greeks to the Roman Empire. And then just, it, it goes from there. there, there there's no, no gap. Each section naturally flows into the next section including, you know, how the governments flow into one another. So Babylon falls to the Persians, Persians fall to Greeks, Greeks fall to Rome. The Roman Empire, even though it was strong, had a whole lot of weak spots. You know, it, it starts talking in there about intermarriage and, and this, that, and the, the, the other thing. It, it might be talking about how the Roman Empire then mixed with the Germanic tribes. Boy, we're, we're getting into some deep history here. I know, you're so excited to hear deep history on this. But I'm trying to make sense of this. So, you know, they, they, they intermingled with the Germanic tribes, and, you know, that may have caused it to be weak. Some think that it's a split between East and West. Uh, I mean, I don't know, um, specifically. But uh, some say it was just the multiculturalism and tribalism that caused the social and political fabric of the empire to, to be weak. Um, but so I'm, I'm thinking it's just one continuous thing. And so it's during that time period of the Roman Empire where Christ comes and sets up the kingdom of God. 
and then through the church, the kingdom of God grows and is spread throughout the world. I mean, think about this. Jesus said with him, his first coming right there, the kingdom of God is at hand. It is here through him. It's not saying the kingdom of God, he didn't say the kingdom of God is going to come around eventually. He said it is here with his first coming. He has ushered in the kingdom of God. And through his apostles, through his church, it is reaching the world so that eventually there will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation that enter into this kingdom. And there is no earthly empire that has ever had the influence that the kingdom of God has had. The stone is still growing. It isn't the mountain quite yet, but it is getting there. And Christ's kingdom is going to continue to grow until he returns and he rules and reigns in his kingdom forever and ever. His kingdom is now. His kingdom is future. That's, you see that a lot in the New Testament. The already not yet kind of dichotomy of the kingdom of God. His kingdom is growing. The stone has, has come. It's growing. It will be the mountain that covers the whole earth one day. And what about all the other earthly empires? It says that there's not an empire that is ever going to stand against it. There's not an empire that would, will ever outlast it. It is eternal. Where is the Babylonian, Babylonian Empire right now? Gone. Where's the Medo-Persian Empire right now? Gone. Where's the Greek Empire? Gone. Where's the Romans? Gone. And I hate to say it, there's going to come a day when the United States is going to be no more. Hopefully that won't be until Christ returns. But when Christ returns, there isn't going to be this nation, that nation, or the other nation. There's going to be one kingdom. It is the kingdom under God. The kingdom of God is here now. It is alive and well in the hearts of believers all over the world. And so it's growing. You know, in the United States, it, it might seem like the kingdom of God is not growing. It might seem that the kingdom of God is kind of stagnant. Well, you know what? This is strange. But in nations around the world that are suffering persecution for their faith, the church is exploding. The kingdom of God is growing by leaps and bounds. There's some supernatural stuff going on all around the world. Kind of makes you wonder, why isn't it happening here? I might talk a little bit about that on Sunday. But this kingdom is growing. This kingdom will be forever. All other kingdoms are going to fall. And we just need to pray that we can be a part of expanding that kingdom. We can be a part of it spreading around the world until that day that it becomes the mountain that fills the entire earth. The chapter concludes with Daniel being rewarded for his service. 
in verses 46 through 49, it says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. So, you know, Nebuchadnezzar is an interesting character. Sometimes he gets it, and when he gets it, he really gets it. And sometimes when he misses it, and he really misses it. So he gets it now. He, he said, you know, you're th this God of Daniel. He's the revealer of secrets. He is the God of gods. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? So he kind of gets it. Doesn't mean he gets it enough that he gives up his pagan ways to follow God, but, you know, at least he gets it, it to a point. And he promotes Daniel in his government, ruler over the, the area of Babylon. Remember, the empire is, covers a whole bunch of areas, and so Daniel will be over the area of Babylon, right there where they are. And so Daniel says, well, hey, promote my three friends. They'll, they'll, be, they'll work under me, and we'll, we'll take care of Babylon for you. And so he does. You know, Daniel knows he's serving a temporary kingdom. In fact, you know, if you've ever read the book of Daniel, and you know, we'll get there eventually, he serves two temporary kingdoms kingdoms but he also now knows that god is going to he's the one that's going to un, usher in an eternal kingdom but until that time would come daniel made the choice to serve god faithfully where he was placed was he wasn't in the most ideal situation he wasn't working for, you know, the nicest guy on the earth. Nebuchadnezzar, he was smart, he was powerful, not necessarily the nicest boss. But Daniel chose to serve him faithfully. And by serving him faithfully, he was serving God faithfully. May we also pray to do the same. And so, as we go to a time of prayer, we want to pray that we as individuals be faithful where God has placed us. We also want to pray that we would take seriously our part in helping that stone to grow into that great mountain that will cover the whole earth. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at harvest-baptist.org or find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can also find info on our children's ministry on Facebook at Harvest Baptist Children's Ministry or on Instagram at KidsQuest underscore HBC. Our student ministries on Facebook at HBC Vertical Student Ministry and on Instagram at VSM underscore HBC. 
we welcome you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are located at 8999 Waltrana Highway in Harvest, Alabama. Thanks for listening, and God bless.